After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, when he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Almighty Gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. Through your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Back when I was a teenager, I've told you before of my deep and abiding affection for the band Deep Purple. I used to listen to the uh, soundtrack of Jesus Christ Superstar because the main vocalist for Deep Purple, Ian Gillen, sang the part of Jesus in the original play. So that was frequently playing in my house. I think of that this morning because... There's this one song, Herod's song, that I think is quite appropriate for us as we start to think about this text and this section of the scriptures. This song takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Of course, it takes place when uh, you know, Pilate sends him to Herod because really he's a Galilean, so Herod should take care of him, not me, Pilate. I shouldn't have the bad stuff. And so there's this song that takes place in which Herod is asking Jesus for miracles to prove who he is. And there's sort of a mocking tone that goes with this. Needless to say, this album probably did not assist my conversion a few years later. Okay? Lines like this. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. Later. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. So if you are the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, feed my household with this bread. You can do it on your head. 
It's almost like Dr. Seuss got channeled there or something like that. But he wouldn't believe who Jesus said he was unless he had seen signs to prove it. And in this way, he is very much like the people were, some of the people we're going to read about, or we actually just read about, here in John chapter 4. He's very much like the Galileans, which is good, I guess, because he was their king. The big idea that in spite of this, Christ the Word still speaks powerful words. Let's get back with this idea of signs. Of course, this text ends with the, with the recognition that this was the second sign uh, that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Uh, it refers to the first sign earlier in this text, the turning of water into wine, which Herod sang about, uh, but which Jesus performed, we see in John chapter 2, his very first miracle, the beginning of his ministry, at the wedding. Signs. Signs point to the reality, but they are not the reality. And that's something we have to remember all the time. I probably cannot say this enough, when we, whether we're talking about um, the signs, like communion. Uh, they point to the reality. They are not the reality themselves. So we have to be careful not to get caught up in the signs and to neglect the reality. This will make sense, I hope, in a few moments. This passage here, following on the heels of Jesus' ministry in Samaria, is meant to provide a contrast between the Jews in Galilee and the Samaritans with regard to Jesus himself. You will remember that the Samaritans believed Christ's words. First they believed the words of the woman at the well, and then they came and met with Jesus for two days, and they believed his testimony about himself. They received his words. The Galileans were not the same. They believed, they were interested in the signs. There's no indication that Jesus did any signs at all while he was in uh, Samaria. He does plenty of signs in Jerusalem, and these people who were there for the feast, in a sense, want to see more. They welcome him because they have seen these signs, and there's sort of this implication they're welcoming him because they want to see more signs. Makes note, a parenthetical note, that Jesus testified or prophesied that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Galilee was his hometown. He didn't have the honor, the respect that he should have had in Galilee. His word was not valued in Galilee. In this way, he's similar to what we read about in Amos chapter 2. The, the people of Israel were sinning greatly and in numerous ways, and God testified, I sent my prophets to you. The problem was they didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't value them. They did not treasure them. They did not heed the words of the prophets. That's the people of Galilee. We see it. In the passage we looked at, uh, that Marty read from Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads from uh, Isaiah, 
sits down and says, this has been fulfilled today. And the people are initially are sort of like, wow, this is great. And then Jesus says a few things that send them over the edge. And they try to send him actually over the edge. They try to toss him off a cliff because they're offended at the grace of God that went beyond Israel to Gentiles like the widow, like Naaman the leper, and did not come to them. And so when Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, he's speaking from firsthand experience. He's already been kicked out of Nazareth. And they're not valuing him here in Cana either. The Galileans put less value on his words than the Samaritans did. See, the Jews were generally intrigued by signs and wonders, things that happened that were beyond explanation that he had performed, because can you really explain how water turns into wine? I don't think any of us can. It does not happen, barring miracle. But we see that Jesus does not perform signs for fun. They are intended to point people back to him. We have to read the signs right. The other day, uh, we were going to the pool at the Y. We were in the building, and Eli was a little bit ahead of me, and I should have like grabbed him and pulled him back because he almost went through the emergency exit. Okay, and I'm like, no, 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 Eli, don't go through that door. And I said, Eli, you can read, right? What does this say? (laughs) Pointing to the sign, alarm will sound. Eli, we don't want the alarm to sound, do we? No. I said, well, what does this sign say? Pool entrance that way. You've got to watch the sign and go to the place it points. And so we followed the signs to the entrance of the pool. That's what we're intended to do. When Jesus does a sign, we're not to be so enraptured with the sign, so caught up with the sign. Oh, it's such a great design. Laura Forsyth must have designed this particular sign. It's great. We're to go where it leads. That's what they were supposed to do, but that's not what they do. They just admired the sign. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so even during Paul's ministry, one of the defining the characteristics of the Jewish people that he encountered, not just in Palestine, but in other places like Corinth, was the desire for signs, the demand, the clamor for signs. The Jews here would want proof that Jesus was Messiah. His teaching was insufficient for them. And now we see, of course, as we, look, as we step back and we look at the, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, and we see the, the, the function of signs within their ministries, because they did signs too, they did validate the teaching of Jesus. They did validate the teaching of the apostles, but they don't replace it. And that was really the idea. They were seeking to replace the teaching of Jesus with signs, miracles, wonders. That's why Paul continued in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to say, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't talk much about the miracle performing Jesus to these people. He talked about the Jesus who was the sacrificial lamb. Paul himself talked about how he was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the power of God that he's talking about there is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not water into wine. Not bread that feeds thousands. His death, his resurrection. So the Galileans we see here welcomed Christ in the hopes of seeing more of the miraculous. But Jesus declares, and it's a little confusing, part of it because it's in English for us, okay? When he says, let me get it right, don't want to goof it up. If you don't see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you there, he's not, it's, it's prompted by the statement of the Father, but he's saying you plural, not you singular. And so he's speaking not so much to the official who was before him, he's speaking to the Galileans who are around him, and he, reminds, he says to them, if you don't see signs, you don't believe. Just like Herod, clamoring for a sign by his swimming pool. For instance, at the end of the song, Or has something gone wrong? Why do you take so long? Come on, King of the Jews, hey. Aren't you scared of me, Christ? Mr. Wonderful Christ? You're a joker, not the Lord. You are nothing but a fraud. Take him away. He's got nothing to say. Get out, you King of the Jews. Get out of my life. He doesn't see the signs when he demands the signs. And so he kicks Christ out of his court, out of his life. The demand, the requirement of signs. There are sign seekers today. They they often become easy prey for wolves who are in sheep's clothing. You can see them on TV all the time, but they're not limited to TV. People like Benny Hinn, Todd Bentley. It's all about signs. It's all about wonders. It's all about the latest miracle. It's all about the latest testimony of a resurrection. It's all about that stuff. It's not about Christ and Him crucified. Taking people's attention away from Jesus and placing it on a sign, a wonder, an unexplained thing. It's a dangerous temptation for many people. The signs were meant to show us the greatness of Jesus but often become what we seek. And so I invite you, brothers and sisters, to seek Jesus in your desperate circumstances. We learn from this text as that, that Jesus goes to Cana, but there's a man in Capernaum who learns about his trip, which means it had to take time. No one could have called up on the phone. He couldn't have heard it on the radio. Nothing like that. There's no TV show reporting you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous and wandering Rabbis, he hears about it through the grapevine. But he hears about it at a very important moment in his life, and that is because this man, he, now he's an official in Herod's court. 
but he's got a problem. Despite his power, despite his most likely his wealth, he has a problem he cannot fix, and that is because his son is sick and near death. None of the doctors he finds can take care of it. Okay? If this, if this was today, he's the guy with the Cadillac healthcare plan, okay? You know, he's not the guy with the lousy plan like I used to have, okay? He would have had the best of insurance, and yet he's finding it is insufficient to deal with his problem. He is in desperate circumstances. And so he does what I'm not sure how many of us would, done, would have done. He goes to Jesus. That's okay if Jesus is in your town, if it's a five-minute walk, okay? But to go from Capernaum to Cana was 35 miles. He's not driving his car. Doesn't have, I don't know if he's got a chariot, probably not. Okay, it's possible, though. He has to go from Capernaum, which is down by the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level, up into the hills. So it's not just he's going 35 miles, but he's going 35 miles uphill. And he goes. This is a journey that would take more than one day, most likely for him. But he goes. He's that desperate. Can you imagine being that desperate that you would make that kind of journey in the desert? And he didn't send someone in his stead. He didn't send one of his servants. He went himself that was that important to him. Surely there was someone he could have sent, but he didn't. Do we grasp how desperate this man was, how grave his circumstances? He wants Jesus to come back with him down to Capernaum. And so he, he goes to Jesus because he has a faith of some sort. He's heard of what Jesus has done. He believes that Jesus could possibly heal his son. So he's got some measure of faith. And he wants that measure of faith to kind of meet his circumstances. He believes that Jesus has the power, the ability to make his son whole. Sometimes we put our faith in the wrong people. Watching uh, something on Henry VIII. Henry VIII was an interesting historical figure. And I'm not sure how much of this was fictionalized, but it's toward the end of his life, and he, because he's the, church, he's the head of the church now, they've completely gotten rid of their ties to Rome uh, because they don't want to deal with the Pope, but he's now the head of the church, he thought he had invested in him the power to heal people. And so his friend is old and feeble, and he lays hands on him, commanding him to be well. That's pride and hubris in anybody but Jesus. Okay? This man runs to Jesus. And he asks him. And remember what I said last week about when the Samaritans asked Jesus to stay for two days, that that was really a weak translation? Same word, same tense. This man is pleading with Jesus, 
Again, it's an imperfect. This thing is it's ongoing. He keeps asking Jesus. He's pleading. He's begging Jesus to come down to Capernaum with him. Okay, he did not travel 35 miles through the desert for a no. He's not giving up. Begging and pleading, as many of us would most likely do. Shortly before I went to RTS Orlando, um, one of my professors, Reggie Kidd, his son was playing in the backyard, and his son fell in the pool. That kind of pleading. When you get the phone call that your son, the ambulances are, have arrived, are, are on their way, and your son is dead, or about to die. Okay, he lived. God had mercy. I can imagine the, the pleading of my professor for the life of his son. The pleading of his wife for the life of her son. That's this guy. Completely desperate. Not wanting a no. He's like the persistent widow. He's not giving up. He keeps asking and asking. Does your desperation turn to persistent prayer? Or do you get lost in hopeless despair? I know what it's like to ask for years for the same thing again and again and again. I've been there. Scripture talks about these things in places like Philippians chapter 2. Starting off with that phrase, the Lord is at hand. Or the Lord is near. And it's because the Lord is near that Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It's the nearness, not the farness of God that he's pointing to. Not the transcendence of God, but as, we, as those theologian guys talk about, the imminence of God. The Lord is near. He is So therefore pray. Lay this before Him. Paul was not the only one who taught this. 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. What is part of humbling yourself? Casting all your anxieties upon Him. Meaning, I can't take care of this, Jesus. I desperately need your help. That's what it means to cast your anxieties upon Him. And what does He say? Why should we do this? Because He cares for you. Or because He takes care of you. And so we're in those desperate moments. We can take comfort in the fact that He is near and that He cares and therefore He hears the prayers that we offer in the midst of our desperation, in the midst of our fear. So where do you need to humble yourself? What anxieties do you need to cast upon Christ? Where is it that you need to bring at the foot of the cross and say, it's too heavy for me, Jesus? but you can carry it. You can strengthen me in my weakness. Just because Jesus has been exalted does not mean that He is far off and unconcerned, but He continues to care. He is the fulfillment of the promise that we see in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Not a far off help. Not a hard to get on the telephone kind of help, but a very present 
help. And so our moments of desperation reveal our personal weakness. They, they reveal our incredible need for Christ. Thirdly, I've changed it. I don't know if it's better or worse. But sometimes Jesus heals out of compassion. Now, don't misunderstand what I just said. Don't think that Jesus sometimes has compassion. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes his compassion moves him to heal. Sometimes it doesn't. We'll talk more about this next week as well. We talk about the the man by the pool. But Jesus does not give him all he seeks Jesus is going to stay in Cana, but he tells the man that he should go, that he should enter into his journey down to, down to Capernaum. Jesus is letting him know, essentially, he's not a genie. Okay? Most of us are familiar with this. Well, I was. Reruns, I dream of genie. I loved her, man. She was awesome. Okay, Barbara Eden, great role for Barbara Eden. Okay, I wish I had a personal genie. Jesus is not your genie. He's not there to accomplish all of your all of your wills, wants, purposes, and desires. Okay? But he does this. Even though he's not going to go, Jesus says, Your son will live. He hasn't seen the boy. Therefore, he doesn't have a a good measure about his symptoms. Okay? It's not like, uh, you know, I, I got this thing on my leg and Amy's been taking pictures of it every day and sending it to her mother. Okay? <laughs> what should we do, Mom? Because <laughs> she used to be a nurse. Okay? So, you know, it's getting better. It's getting better. He doesn't have pictures. He doesn't have the, 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 the chart there to look at to kind of, oh, I think he must have this. He's going to be okay. That's not the idea. The idea is, your son will live because I say so. Because I declare it. And unspokenly, because I am the son of God, the creator of all of the worlds, and I can do this. And I'm doing it. The one who hangs the stars in the sky, from our perspective. He's speaking about this boy's health. And saying, he will live. Why why didn't Jesus go? Why didn't he go down to Capernaum? I think he wants to show, this is a sign that his word is effective and it's powerful. He doesn't have to be there to accomplish his purpose. Okay? He doesn't have, some of the miracles that that he performs, he touches the person. Okay, in this case... He's not touching them. He's not geographically next to them. He's not touching them. There's no magic potion that's involved in all of this. It is specifically and only His Word which accomplishes its purpose. The Word of the Son of God is sufficient. The very thing that most of the Galileans did not believe. But He shows compassion in healing the son that this man so obviously loved that he crossed the desert to find a man to have him healed. 
And so the sign points us to Christ. Christ, who is full of compassion, full of mercy, full of grace according to our need. This is an illustration of what we find in Hebrews chapter 4 when it speaks about Jesus being our great high priest. And so this healing is really sort of the part of the priestly ministry of Jesus. There in, in Hebrews 4, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to stare down death like Gethsemane. He knew what it was like to face death. And not just like, you know, dying in your sleep kind of death, the kind we all hope we have. Horrible death. He was staring down. He understands us in our weakness. He lost his father, Joseph, the man who raised him. He knows what it means to lose a man you love. He understands these temptations, these pressures. So let us then with confidence, Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Is your need financial? I'm not going to sound like a televangelist right here, okay? I'm just telling you. Jesus knew what it, was meant, what it was like to be poor, okay? He knew what it was like to not have money and to not know where the next meal was coming from. Okay? He understood that temptation. He, un- he understood the temptation of physical weakness, death. He understood these things. Has a friend betrayed you? Has a loved one betrayed you? Jesus has experienced that. He knows the kind of grace you need in that moment. And so, because he's fully human and has experienced all of these sorts of things, we can go to him. He understands what we're going through. But not only this isn't just like a counselor who understands, he has the grace that we need in the midst of that need. Because of his great compassion and love. This does not mean that Jesus gives us all we ask, as I've mentioned, but he dispenses grace and mercy out of his wisdom and purpose. And so sometimes, like, I said, like he said to Paul, three times Paul was praying, Lord, deliver me from this, this thorn in my flesh. And the answer back was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes he will say that. But he's, what he's doing is he's giving Paul strength. Grace to meet his need. Just not necessarily the way Paul wanted it. Okay? So, don't... Don't limit him to one answer. That's when you get into trouble and you start to doubt God and that he loves you and that he cares about you when you decide that you know the only way that prayer should be answered. We all do that. We've all been there. So, this man trusts enough in Jesus' word apart from a sign yet that he enters into his journey, he begins to go home. Not sad, not discouraged, but hopeful that his son may live. And this official on the way meets some of his slaves or servants 
who are, who are coming to find him. And they bring good news to him. This is the next day when he meets upon him. This indicates again what a lengthy journey it was. Unless you're a marathon man, he's a, he's a king's official. He's probably not in really good shape. Okay, he's, he's not Mr. I run, I run half marathons for fun. Okay, um, this ain't him. They find him on the way back and they bring him news that his son has recovered from this illness. The fever has broken, they say, and he asks them, well, when did this happen? And they tell him, of course, the seventh hour yesterday. So shortly after lunchtime or noon, midday, this happens. And the man thinks, and he realizes that is when I spoke to Jesus. That is when he said, my son will live. It was not just a mere coincidence. It was not just a pleasant accident but it was the word of Jesus accomplished. And so here we have this amazing sort of conclusion to this where he believes in Christ. Not just for a miracle, but presumably for salvation. And not just him, but it says him and his, all his household. Jesus worked through the whole household, through the illness of this child, to bring them to salvation, something far greater. They laid hold of Jesus by faith. This leads us kind of another one of those questions. Are we content with Jesus himself, or must, must we have our own way? I'm spelling it out more. I've alluded to this. David Wells, in one of his books, writes this. We have turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights. And essentially, he's talking about therapeutic moralistic deism. That if I, if I play you know, along by the rules well enough, uh, God will make sure that everything falls out my way and I'll have a good kind of life, you know? And that's the, the mindset of so many people in America. That's the God they believe in. That's the imaginary God that they hold to, not the God who says, I will freely give you salvation. And now, that you're my child, I ask you to obey me. There's a big disconnect. One of the other books I'm reading right now is a book on, called Unplanned. Uh, i got to finish. Um, and it's very insightful. You know, this woman's insight into herself as she looks back on her life. Very insightful. And she talks about the disconnect. There was what she believed and what she did. They were not connected to one another. Her faith in Christ and what she said she believed about ethics and morality were not what she actually lived, not what she actually did. And so, if we're just coming to Jesus for the, benef the benefits, that's usually what's going to happen, is there's going to be a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do and how we live. What if we're, we realize we're reckoning with the Lord as well as a Savior? There's going to be more in harmony. We're still sinners, 
It's going to be imperfect, okay? But there shouldn't be that much disconnect between what we say we believe and generally how we live. Because Christ is at work in us by his Spirit. This is the difference between loving the Lord of heaven and earth and believing in a genie in a bottle. So this text calls us to ponder who we really are, I think, in relation to Jesus. Are we like most of the Jews in Galilee who are sort of interested spectators? You know, they're really wanting to see more miracles. What's Jesus going to do today? Okay. Are we like the Samaritans who took Jesus at his word? Believe that which he said? Are we in desperate straits like this official and realize that all we have is Jesus, even though we may have all of the advantages in the world, like money and power? This text also warns us that Jesus knows who we are and Jesus won't play games with us. It reveals that he came to accomplish the Father's will, not our will. He came to make people, to make us people who delight in the will of the Father and not so much in our own will. And so those who humble themselves before him do find a compassionate Savior who gives grace and mercy according to their needs. Jesus, indeed, the compassionate healer. Let's pray. Father, there are many here who are in need of your compassion, who are in need of your mercy and your grace because they're struggling. They're feeling overwhelmed. They're lost and confused. And so I pray that your spirit would be at work amongst us. That as we hear about this healing of the official son, that our eyes would go where they belong, to the Jesus who did it, to the Jesus who displayed mercy, compassion, that we might pray and receive that which we need from him who sits upon the throne of grace. For we ask this in his name. Amen.